0: The so Joan Rivers interview continues, and there's an element of risque humor. There's references to Aristotle Onassis. There's midgets involved, which she goes back to primarily to tell a long standing gag. Is it a gag, though? I can't tell. Apparently, it is a real anecdote. She talks about her agent, Irving, and legitimately says true story several times regarding the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs Disney film in 1939, saying that they hired dwarfs to play at the marquee, and they got very drunk and aggressive. And I did try looking this up, and I couldn't find any implication that this happened. And I can only think that if I investigate the New Yorker archives of 1939, maybe this might pop up. But I am intrigued to see if that actually happened. I'd like to think that happened. A Very strange circumstance. But Joan Rivers leaves early because she has to go to a film premiere for Young Winston.
1: And this was on a few weeks ago, is that right? It was actually, yeah, I got a repeat on BBC Two a few weeks ago, but actually it's probably best known, as far as television screenings are concerned, it's best known for being what was on opposite the shows that everyone was watching. Christmas Night 1977, Bruce Forsyth Life and the Generation Game, Mike Yarwood Christmas Show... Eric and Ernie's Christmas show that had half the population watching the premiere of Young Winston was actually what was on in opposition on ITV. I need to see this. It actually sounds like a really good film. You have Robert Shaw, and
0: Bancroft, Simon Ward, Jack Hawkins, Ian Holm, Anthony Hopkins, Patrick McGee, Edward Wood was
1: John Mills, and that's just the top billing. It's
0: kind of a big deal. I think I might have to
1: see this. Have you seen it? It's quite, Yes, it, it, I've not seen it, no. I, I mean, I've heard good things about it. It's quite an epic, and it's... Yes, I think it's, it's quite... I Highly really regarded. It. It's a Richard Attenborough film from, I think. Yeah, 1972, isn't it? Yes.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: Well, that's. I need to see that.
0: And do you wonder about that, though? Just to take a point back on this, Joan Rivers going to a premiere, this is in Los Angeles, and she's obviously touring, but I'm guessing it must have been something that her agent must have tied in when she happened to be in Los Angeles, because it's already been said she's going to Beverly Hills, and she's going to Vegas. It always makes me wonder as to how that works in terms of which celebrities should appear at which premieres but I guess it's just down to the agents I suppose.
1: I guess so I mean we're used these days to these kind of things being very much full-scale publicity do's where you know the person is all over TMZ and they're all over like e-network and so on and I guess that in its own way in a slightly smaller scale it was exactly the same then and you'd be Give you a chance for the actors and the actresses to show off their attire and what have you and be on the red carpet and their picture of being glossy magazines and what have you. So, yes, I guess that it was something that was as sought after then as I guess it is now. Although I would say that in terms of
0: the UK culture in regards to celebrity appearances, I don't think we take enough advantage of that. I find that certainly in regards to London where you have premieres often midweek in Leicester Square of various films, talk shows and generally opportunities to ascertain interviews on primetime television in the UK are really not made full use of, and more so not made use of by cinemas and places that events can be held. And for example, Crispin Glover, now he's not a huge name, but he's been touring around the UK and not one radio interview, not even one television appearance, which, to be fair, if one considers how many channels there actually are now, it's inexcusable not to have at least a focus on an independent director, an alternative actor, a film that may or may not get the reviews or the exposure it deserves, necessarily. And I think that may be something of a catalyst as to Populist cinema, populist television, that certainly in the UK, we don't take full advantage of when the stars come over here, when the actors, when the actresses, when the directors and the musicians come over here. And it's just bad publicity. There's just no middle person to say, oh, well, how about Oliver Stone's in town? Why don't we get him to go do a talk at this cinema? And which is why when you go to Los Angeles, you can end up at an event where Kirk Douglas and Sydney Poitier and Lily Tomlin and Tim Conway are all in one room because they live in the area. So surely it should be a heightened emphasis to publicists and agents and the like to perhaps take advantage of where they are. And it is disappointing that you don't get enough celebrities coming over to the UK and being given that opportunity. Perfect example: Aaron Paul, known as Jesse in Breaking Bad is someone who has recently come over to the uk to accept a bafta i don't know how it works i don't know if they are aware of that in advance but to travel that far and not receive a bafta would probably been a bit of an issue but nevertheless breaking bad won a bafta and aaron paul was there to accept it and yet here we are the most exposure aside from the genius of aaron paul being such a kind-hearted chap that he'll be going i happen to be at the national theater this evening come say hi Aside from that, we don't see any example of a talk show or anything else take advantage of the fact that Aaron Paul's in town. Why not have a conversation with him on public radio or television in the UK? Completely missed. And it is mildly disconcerting that the most we got in this particular situation was Aaron Paul having a photo with Ian Beale from EastEnders at the BAFTAs. That was the most we got. I doesn't get much bigger than that. That's the
1: tragedy. It doesn't get much bigger than that. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, the only thing I would say, I don't have any evidence to contradict what you're saying, but the only thing I'd suggest is that it may well be that the slightly lesser known celebrities are interviewed when they come here. They may get opportunities to sit down and chat and whatever it may be on things like, for example, BBC Local Radio, or they may do bits and pieces on a channel like Sky Arts, for example. But I suspect what you're getting at is that there isn't anything quite as high profile as the late night talk show in the States. And so because that's such a popular shop window, then when those people appear on those shows, I mean, they're being, well, give me an example. I mean, it's not a like for like, obviously, in terms of content, but in terms of exposure, I would say that when you get an American celebrity come here, if they're a lister they're most likely to appear on something like Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross. Alternatively, they may well turn up on something like the One Show, which is not necessarily the first place that you would look for someone like that. But again, that's quite often a place where you do see sort of visiting celebrities and so on. But it's not quite as high profile. We don't really have anything in the UK which is an identical, like-for-like comparison to the 11:30 talk show. The most we
0: have nearest. To that, would be the Late Late Show in Ireland, who have quite a fair number of high profile celebrities because, well, aside from the fact that they've been running since the 60s, they take advantage of the fact that someone's turned up and made the effort to come and premiere a film or promote a film or a TV show in Ireland. And I think we take that for granted in the UK. I think we take that for granted in London, for sure. And It's frustrating that there's not enough effort put into bringing the medium and the persona together. That there's enough opportunity to bring these elements together, and it's never really fully taken advantage of because, despite the fact that it's convenient, it's the fact that they don't take advantage of right time, right place anymore. I just find that quite frustrating. But before we move on to the musical act, of this show, The Bee Gees. I think we should take a few more moments to consider the connecting point of this episode. Peter Cook, as we spoke before, was with Joe Rivers on the 1986 show Can We Talk for the UK. The Bee Gees, best known in terms of their talk show involvement in the UK, is when they went on an episode of Clive Anderson Talks Back in 1997. And about 10 minutes into the interview, they walk off stage. And initially, Clive Anderson thinks this is a joke. And then he looks quite upset at the fact that they've walked off the set. And this becomes quite a big thing. And in terms of UK talk show history, it's quite a prominent moment. And only four years previously, you had Peter Cook coming on, dominating the show, and appearing throughout the show as four different characters. And a lot of people considered this to be something of a comeback after a lull. And to see him reappear and reemerge as these characters and perform a wonderful example of improvisation was very significant, especially when you consider the fact that Joan Rivers appeared on the show the same year is relevant. But the fact that you have the Bee Gees, Peter Cook, Joan Rivers, there's this whole connection, everything connects, Clive Anderson. This show is kind of a weird algorithm in the whole world of talk shows when one considers Peter Cook and his rise and his fall and his slight rise again before he died in 94 I really hope that we get the opportunity to have a look at can we talk with Joe Rivers and Peter Cook and if anyone has any full shows we'd be more than happy to have a look at them and talk about them definitely yes so as we move into the BGS now you and I both agree. We're not really fans of the Bee Gees. I'm not saying we don't like them. We just don't know a huge amount of them without actually making the consistent effort to actually read about their lives. We're not interested in their music. We're not really fans of the Bee Gees. Is that a fair comment?
1: Yeah, I'd say that was fair. I mean, my knowledge of the Bee Gees is pretty much limited to their work with Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which I guess is how I suppose most people know them. But as you mentioned to me off air before, even before they were on Johnny Carson's show in 72, they'd been around for, what was it, 15 years before then? And this is five years before Saturday Night Fever. They formed in 1958. So there's no doubt that they had quite a career. And the only thing I would take issue with is that you said that in terms of talk show appearances, the best known in the UK for the Clive Anderson incident, I'd actually say that they're best known for appearing with Lorraine Kelly on GMTV the day after and they had a lovely chat and everything was fine. No one remembers that. Every time I go looking for that in the polls, nope, never never shows up. It's always Bee Gees, Clive Anderson, Oliver Reed, Michael Aspel, George Best, Teddy Rogan. Never see Bee Gees having a quiet chat with Lorraine Kelly. Never shows up in any of the polls. And I always vote for it.
0: Yeah, well, in that respect and that is definitely something we've got to talk about. Oliver Reed's appearances on talk shows has to be Covered for sure but as you say no one remembers the talk shows where oliver reed was sober and it's the same with the Bee Gees. of course they're not going to remember a nice general conversation where they promote their album and walk off as intended at the time expected that that wouldn't be memorable it's perhaps intrinsical to chat show culture in the uk as opposed to talk show culture in the us that we only remember the notorious the infamous moments of chat shows in the UK whereas in the states you have a culture where it embraces appearances that work on the merits of the performances or at the moment Jimmy Fallon viral performances performances by actors and actresses and comedians and musicians that can be wrapped up and delivered to the YouTube audience and clicked on millions of times that's a real big difference between us cynics over in the UK and the culture of the US where it's a community where talk show is a real landmark long standing medium in television so yes i i understand what you mean that talk shows in america as opposed to chat shows in the UK we don't remember the Good times we merely sneer at the bad times, and that's to be fair it's not to say that the clive anderson bg's appearance is a bad interview, but then again, Clive Anderson isn't there to really have a conversation with his guests it's there to kind of throw a banter out and see if they're willing to play tennis and in the bG 's case they weren't
1: that appearance seemed to me to be perhaps a breakdown in communication between the agents for the BGs and the booker for Clive Anderson because I don't know if any kind of promise was sort of made to them that we're going to be treated with a certain amount of respect for or anything like that that they felt was due to them but it just wasn't the type of show that it was. I mean Clive Anderson is a very witty, quick-witted ex-stand-up comic of course an ex-barrister and that's what he does. I mean he engages in fast-paced repartee. And sometimes, for example, he'll have somebody like a like a Jeffrey Archer or somebody like that who'll try and pit their wits against him and doesn't always come off too well. And yes, I mean, it's just that that's exactly what you expect with him. And and you know, I mean, if you were the Bee Gees agent, then you know what the difference is going to be between, I mean, a jest, but I mean, you know what the difference is going to be between the Clive Anderson interview and then Levine Kelly the next day, you know exactly what it's going to be like you know how it's going to go before you even start it so it is a bit of an oddity that they found themselves in that position and I mean it's just that always a, it's a sense I've always got with Barry givers I've just got the, the sort of impression that he does look like somebody who is not going to be shy about making his feelings known if he's not happy about a situation even though he's always got that sort of fixed grin a fixed smile on his face He does seem to me to be somebody who has got a relatively, a little bit short temper. I don't think that's quite the right expression. He's not somebody who would get overtly angry, but I don't think that he's somebody who would sit there and take any nonsense as he saw.
0: I always perceived Barry Gibbs, especially when I rewatched that 1997 interview with Clive Anderson, as Don Simpson meets Robert Lindsay. (laughs) And this is at a point in their career where they are promoting their 10th album, to whom it may concern as it happens although they arguably peaked with Saturday Night Fever soundtrack to the film later on in the 70s in terms of the span of their career this was about their halfway point they as of this moment produced 12 more albums and they go on stage and they perform living in Chicago two guitars three voices all quite somber Especially after Joan Rivers being quick on the draw, quick on the draw, you get this quite somber downer of a song living in Chicago. Primarily, I'd imagine, picked because it references Chicago, as opposed to it necessarily having any relevance to anything in particular. It was just the fact that living in Chicago, oh, we're in America. And they all join Johnny on the set and get into a conversation. You have Barry in the red shirt, noticeable on the fact that he more or less wears the same red shirt. In the 1997 interview. Do we know whether it is the same red shirt? I'd like to think that it was. I think that the 1972 appearance, it's a slightly more maroon shirt. So maybe it's just worn, well worn by a set in Who knows? Robin Brown Top, he's the one sitting in the middle when they performed Living in Chicago. Then you have Barry in the red shirt and Morrison wearing all blue. And they get them on the set and they refer to the Angry Brigade and... They talk about how the albums of theirs come out in the U.S. before anywhere else, and that they were competing with the Osmonds in regards to the tour of that year. The Osmonds are touring in '72 as well, which is where Johnny mentions Donny Osmond from the Pepsi generation to the Something generation, which I believe to the Coke generation might be
1: what was blanked out. What you mentioned previously. Now, hang on. If they had to blank it out, should we blank it out as well?
0: No, because. As far as I'm aware, Coke generation was more of a reference to a brand. Well, we
1: mean Coca-Cola, of course. That's what we mean.
0: Yeah, not cocaine. Oh, you didn't need to spell
1: it out, for goodness sake. I mean...
0: I'd like to think that perhaps 42 years on, it really isn't an issue whether Donny Osmond may or may not have taken Coke, to be honest.
1: Well, let's be clear. Let's put this on the record. We have no evidence that Donny Osmond has ever taken Coke. That's clear enough, isn't it? So that guess is off the hook. Yeah, he was more of a Pepsi person. We cannot prove it, that's what we're saying. We cannot prove that
0: he ever drank Coke. That he was more of a Pepsi fan. And Johnny Carson's accusation that it went from the Pepsi generation to the Coke generation that he started drinking Coke on a massive level over Pepsi. When you
1: say massive level, I mean, do you mean like he would have like bottles of it one after the other in such a way that he would be effectively doing you know, if they were all sort of lined up together, we would be doing a line of coke, is what you mean. Just a can a day, nasally or orally. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe that's how much he liked it. But uh, blame Johnny, not us. So, with that in mind... Can I, just, can, I put on the, can I just put on the record, by the way, I'm not worth suing, because I've got fuck all. So, yeah, you're wasting time there. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> if
0: anyone would like to create that, that could be the first talk show, talk show t-shirt. I'm not worth suing because I've got fuck all. <laughs> and if you're offended by the bad language in this podcast, that's why I just left the explicit button on when I uploaded it. So,
1: If Don Osmond wants to go after me for me suggesting that he might have enjoyed a Coca-Cola every now and then, then all he's going to get, I mean, all I've got in the, of any value in this room that I'm speaking to you from now is a Mike Yarwood VHS commercial release from 1990. And what is that over there? Oh, there's a library book about politics, which is actually overdue. It's got £3.50 fine on it, so if he wants to appropriate that, he will have to take on the, uh, the cost of the fine as well.
0: And beyond that, it's just an empty room.
1: Yes, I've not even sat down because I've got nothing to sit on. It's
0: just you perched in a wall floor junction, wrapped around in a ragged blanket.
1: Hang on, now you've got to tell Donny Osmond that I've got a blanket. He's going to add that to the list now. Well, horses for courses. Or should I say... I've got no horses. That was never proved. Or should I say,
0: crazy horses for courses. Hey. Indeed. So, they mention communism, which just seems like a casual thing to bring up that they're going to China and communists, and this is very much the era of the communism. And then they mention a particular UK talk show host. Michael Parkinson. Indeed. Indeed. People can go to our Facebook page, the Talk Show Talk Show Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com forward slash talkshowpodcast. And by the time this is up, you'll be able to have a look at the articles regarding Parkinson's view, especially by the early 80s, his view on Johnny Carson. And it's just a nice little moment where worlds collide. And as far as I'm aware, and if anyone else can confirm otherwise, Parkinson and Carson never... Cross paths in real life. Is that right? Would you agree with that, as far as we're aware?
1: I've got no knowledge of that ever happening. I know that one or two British celebrities were on the Johnny Carson show over the years. Huey Green was on the show, for example, but I'm not aware of any meeting or crossover between Michael Parkinson and Johnny Carson. The only country that I know of where Michael Parkinson you know, did his shows outside of the UK, the straightforward talk show, was in Australia. Yes. But no, I'm not aware of any meeting between the two.
0: And that's another reason why this particular episode is really quite a big deal in terms of one that we've watched for the show, because let's lay this out. We're only perhaps two thirds of the way through the show. And yet here we are. We have examples of two guests relevant in the bigger scheme of things to the world of talk shows. Joan Rivers and the Bee Gees. We have all the Tonight Show cliches coming into place. I mean that in a very respectable sense. The high-o and the golf putt and the banter and so forth. And we have the mention of Parkinson on Carson. You have all these elements. You have so many things going on in this show, which makes it so vibrant in the bigger scheme of things, especially if you're, like ourselves, talk show fans. And although this particular interview doesn't necessarily pull much out of the bag, admittedly, we do get a few more adverts in the midst of it. We get... Prior to the interview, Edmund Mann with his chopping board, when it rains, it pours. Malt and salt, Chicago, Illinois. We get Pepto-Bismol surrounding a political argument over dinner, which is completely relevant, given that Nixon was re-elected a couple of days before. We have Reynolds Rap in relation to Turkey. Of course, Thanksgiving, we're at that point of the year. Mateus Rosé-Wine. And we have, two adverts for Sears, Kenmore Compactor for Men Who Hate to Be Garbagemen. And The Freedom Maker. Sears Lady Kenmore Dishwasher. So, you have all these elements here that kind of add up to this time of the year, something kind of warm about it all. So, despite all these ad breaks, making up for the lack of conversation perhaps from the Bee Gees, can you think of any examples of musicians joining a talk show host in an interview and it being consistently good? I mean, of course, there are many, many examples of different musicians performing and then joining talk shows on the sofa for a chat but aside from the controversial ones and aside from for example Cher being on Late Night with Letterman and calling him an asshole and I'm saying that in the accent that she gave on the night can you think of any moments where a musician is brought back onto a show not for necessarily their music but more so for their banter?
1: I think that you do get some You do get some musicians who are just particularly witty. Well, One that springs to mind is not quite a comfortable interview, but it's a memorable one, is The Who, appearing with Russell Harty. And they sort of have a bit of fun with the format because they start asking questions of him and they don't take him entirely seriously, but it's all relatively good natured. It's It's not a sort of sex pistols, Bill Grundy type of thing. And Nowadays, you you do get certain people... I mean, just recently I saw Michael Buble on, I think it was Graham Norton, and he seemed very relaxed and at ease with just being a performer, as opposed to sometimes you do get some musicians who are sort of not necessarily entirely comfortable. I just saw a clip of Elvis Costello on Fantasy Football League from a few years back. And again, I mean, he's somebody, of course, who appeared on Larry Sanders' show a couple of times. and appeared as something of a way, Well, yes, he left the uh, the green room in a worse state than Angela Lansbury, famously. But, yeah, so again, he was just somebody who seemed sort of quite comfortable and just, just comfortable chatting as myself. was. You, you you get some musicians who they are more comfortable when they're performing and they don't have a great deal to say as themselves, but I suspect that... There are certain people, for example, that you will see on talk shows who only appear on talk shows when they do have something to promote, and even then, sometimes it might be very occasionally. I mean, one person, not a musician, one person that I remember being surprised to see on Parkinson a few years ago was Roan Atkinson and it took me a little while before I twigged that he was there to promote Johnny English cinemas, and he's not somebody, even when you see like documentaries about, for example, say a documentary about Blackadder, for example unless it's one which has got everybody involved from Richard Curtis onwards, then quite often someone like Rowan Atkinson is, is not someone that you see interview at all, and it's an interesting, an interesting issue we're, sort of, we're moving towards Rob Reiner's appearance, but Actors appearing on talk shows is an interesting area because, strangely enough, actors sometimes are the people who are least at ease with being interviewed. For example, Christopher Lloyd on Wogan, who could barely utter a a single word. And this is not the case with, for example, somebody like Chevy Chase, who, again, was obstinate, but that was more because he's not really an ad-libber. And I saw Will Ferrell on a chat show recently, and he was thrown into a situation where he was being required to ad-lib and he looked very uncomfortable with it.
0: I'd never seen a bad Will Farrell appearance.
1: This was when he was on Graham Norton's show on New Year's Eve, just past, and he was there with the, the whole of the Anchorman crew. And... I mean, he didn't start sweating profusely or anything like that, but they started doing some bits and pieces with the audience, and Grim Norton would go in and he would like get a few details from the audience and then throw back to Will Ferrell to give a headline in the style of Ron Burgundy, and by the end of it he was really drying up, and it was quite obvious that he just wasn't really comfortable doing that kind of thing. Whereas you get, for example, some actors who, it's not so much that they that they don't feel comfortable ad living, it's just that they don't feel comfortable being themselves. One that springs to mind is Warren Clark when he appeared on, I think it was the very first episode of The Kumars at number 42 and even though that was a partially scripted partially ad-libbed show I remember him being just almost mute because he, he just for whatever reason he just was not comfortable being himself at all and yet he's a brilliant actor and if you were casting him in a role in which he had to play a character who was on chat show it would be perfect at it of course he would. But some people just don't like being themselves. Ronnie Barker was like that. I mean, he actually said it to Ronnie Corbett once when they had to go out as themselves on the Royal Variety Performance. He said, "I don't feel comfortable being myself." And Ronnie Corbett said, "Well, be a character called Ronnie Barker then." And uh, it's, it's a strange way of sort of approaching things. But some people are like that. There are certain there are certain actors who I can't remember ever seeing being interviewed i can't remember i know he's done it once to promote the biodebec tapes but i've got no recollection of ever seeing james Bolam, for example being interviewed on any of the talk shows that we've seen and you tend to get for example sometimes you'll tend to get people like say roger moore for example when he's been interviewed it's usually going to be to promote something like his work with unicef or something like that it's going to be something big it's not going to be that he's just there as a run of the mill guest, because you know just some people just don't enjoy that kind of thing, and we'll be talking about signature guests
0: on talk shows in the near future, and how you have certain guests always brought back, always reappearing, whether they've got anything to promote or not, but they're there as a friend of the show, the likes of Don Rickles, Bill Murray, Joan Rivers for a period of time, Joey Bishop, and many others made many
1: appearances uh one that's been explained is. Regis Philbin with David Letterman, of course.
0: Perhaps bringing this full circle before we move on to Rob Reiner. Musician, potentially acting in some parts and appearing on a show, maybe being himself, maybe not being himself. It's never really too clear, but it works. Is Tom Waits appearing on the parody chat show, Firmwood Tonight? Mm Mm-hmm. And... The premise being that his coach broke down on the way to the fictional town of Fernwood, and he's reluctantly appearing on the show and he comes out with some amazing lines. And as far as Martin Mull's concerned, the host of Fernwood Tonight, Tom Waits improvised for the most part and he pulls out a bottle of Jack Daniels and starts swigging at it. Martin Mull goes, oh, it's unusual sort of seeing people drink on set here. And Tom Waits comes out with the immortal line I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Okay. And that's perfect. And Martimau's clearly thrilled when he says that. <laughs> and I'd like to think that Tom Waits just went on there and threw out this improvisation. He just, he came up with some wonderful lines. And I think he's an example of someone, put him in the right situation, and he just does wonders with the situation he's put in. The BG's not so much. I can't think of many musical guests who have really stood out in terms of their appearances. That's not to say we won't be talking about arguably the fad of musicians getting their own talk shows or variety shows, such as Lulu and Shirley Bassey, Scylla Black. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they're the best guests. Does it even necessarily mean they're the best hosts? But that's something we'll be looking into further down the line.
1: An interesting detail for one of those shows, when Tom Jones was recording such a series in the late 1960s, it was shot twice at the same time. This is absolutely true. It was shot with both the American standard and with British cameras as well, because it was going to be a transatlantic show. It was going to be one of your blue-grade ITC productions. It was going to go out on both sides of the Atlantic. So you had a situation where Tom Jones would speak directly into the colour camera, which was going to be going out in the US, And also to the side of that colour camera was a black and white camera for the UK. A real a real oddity. It was it was a time where it was around about that time where you've got the UK almost switching to colour but not quite and you've still got the old four oh five line standard being used by most people, which is why you couldn't just do a straightforward one single take and then convert it from format to format. So yeah, a real a real oddity. There's not too many shows that I can think of that are like that that have to be shot. Twice, in effect, in one take. But that's the way it was. And do you know which show this was? I believe the show was This Is Tom Jones from the late 1960s.
0: Well, if anyone happens to have a copy of both the British and the American versions and would like to edit it together so you've got Tom Jones cussing from colour to black and white to colour to black and white, please do.
1: Actually, you don't need to because somebody's already done it. All you need to do is track down... A lovely little three-part Channel 4 documentary from 2002 called The Showbiz Set. And I think it's episode two of that, you'll see Dennis Kirkland, who was later producer-director for Benny Hill. And he was a floor manager on that show, and he talks exactly about that process. And they've actually got the same shot side-by-side, in colour and black and white, from the two different angles.
0: Well, there you go. And you can hear the final part of that conversation on episode six of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast, in which Gary and myself talk about Rob Reiner and Dr. David Rubin. In the meantime, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, our handle is at Podcast. You can like our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Podcast. or if you have any queries, questions, or would just like to get involved in the show in some capacity, albeit as a guest or on the technical side of things, you can write to us via email admin at podnose.com, A-D-M-I-N at P-O-D-N-O-S-E. Com. I've been your host, George Grimwood. This has been the Talk Show Talk Show podcast, and we'll see you again next week. The Talk Show Talk Show podcast is part of the Podnos Network. Music by Ian Cummins, sound engineering by Ocho, and produced and edited by George Grimwood.